0: This is the Sales Gravy Podcast. I'm Jeb Blunt, best-selling author of Fanatical Prospecting and Sales EQ, and I'm here to help you open more doors, close bigger deals, and rock your commission check. I am so stoked because we've got a brand new sponsor, one of my favorite companies in the world, T-Mobile. T-Mobile's business services division, T-Mobile at Work, is redefining the way that wireless works for business, and they're growing so fast that they need sales professionals like you. If you love sales, you will love the T-Mobile culture. I know it personally, I know their leaders, and I know that it's an amazing place to work. It is truly a place where you can match your ambition with unlimited earnings and a company that is going places. So stop right now and go check out T-Mobile Careers at t That's t-mobile.salesgravy.com. On this episode, I have a really interesting conversation with Dan McGuinn, who is the author of the new book, Psyched Up. And we talk a lot about the psychology of selling and getting past hangups like rejection. A little warning, Dan's audio quality is poor, and I've done the best I possibly can to boost it up. But the conversation is so important that I knew you'd want to hear it anyway. So here's my conversation with Dan McGuinn, author of Psyched Up. Hi, this is Jeff Blunt, CEO of Sales Gravy. Welcome to another episode of Sales Masters. I have with me Dan McGuinn. He's a senior editor at Harvard Business Review and the author of a rockin' brand new book called Psyched Up. Dan, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, Jeff. Thanks for having me.
0: Dan, tell us a little bit about your background, and then we're going to jump into the messages in this book.
1: Sure. Thanks again. So I'm an editor at Harvard Business Review. Uh, I edit all of our sales content. So I think a lot about what it takes to succeed in your profession. I also edit content on negotiation and entrepreneurship and other topics. Before I came to HBR, I was a reporter at Newsweek for a long time, where I mostly wrote about business management.
0: Excellent. So you've seen a little bit of everything in your career. And what motivated you to write psyched up because it's a cool book it's I mean the the message in the book is so right on the money but what got you to that place
1: thanks so I came from three places really so number one I was a really mediocre high school athlete uh, I was the kid on the football and basketball teams where if I went into the games it was definitely during garbage time in the final moment but I came away from Fascinated by the things that the coaches would do to try to get us psyched up before the game, to try to manipulate our emotions and put us in that very confident, high performing place. Then I, you know, I went to college, got out of college, started working. But occasionally as an adult, I would run into people, lawyers, surgeons, uh, people pitching VCs who were former athletes themselves, and I'd watch them go through this sort of psych up routine that they retained from when they were an athlete. So I kept running into people who were doing this, and it seemed to help them. And then the third thing is, when I work, started working at Harvard, I would see academic research and studies that would seem to have a lot of similarities to the things we used to do in the locker room, things that people would do before they go into a negotiation or, or before they give some sort of a performance. So I began to see actual science and research about this, and that's what convinced me there was a book here.
0: My book, sells EQ. I write extensively about how salespeople, in particular, need to manage their own disruptive emotions, and for sales professionals, the, why those disruptive emotions are their are, are their Achilles' heel. Those are the things that hold them back more than anything else. And when you think about any type of of role where there's you have to perform, whether it's legal or sales or athletics or even you know a speaker or a teacher a soldier or you know fireman going into an emergency situation there's this moment of truth that passed through where you have to manage the emotions that are holding you back and and then go forward into something that creates fear so so how do you address that moment of truth in the book and what what are some techniques that you advise people to use when they're in those situations
1: well I think you're right on the money with that advice and I think before we get into the techniques I think, number one, it's important to recognize this, and I think most people don't. I think that if you think about performance, what most people think about getting ready to perform is practice. So imagine you and I wanted to play piano at Carnegie Hall. Well, we better play the piano a heck of a lot and get really, really good at it. I think too many people focus on that aspect of preparation. They don't focus on what you're doing for the final 10 or 15 minutes before you actually go on the stage. At that point, it's too late to practice. You're not gonna get any better at the piano at that point. You you know, you're sort of done there. At that point, all you have are tricks and hacks and techniques to manipulate your mindset. Basically, you know, there's a lot of techniques in the book that we can talk about, but from a high level standpoint, the three things that I think about are number one, you wanna find ways to try to manage your anxiety which is gonna hurt your performance. Number two, you wanna find ways to crank up your confidence level, which is going to help your performance. And number three, you want to find a way to manage your energy level to make it appropriate the kind of performance you're going to be doing that day.
0: We know that emotions are transferable and we know that emotions are contagious. So I love that you're, A, you're focusing on your confidence. So when you're in a situation like that, if you transfer confidence to other people, you can literally say anything and they'll all nod their head and they're happy with you. So confidence, I think people underestimate how powerful confidence is when, when especially in situations where you're communicating with other people and your anxiety is sort of the anti-confidence, right? So if you're, an, if, you're an, if you're anxious, you become insecure, which makes you less confident and you can be the most brilliant human being in the world. And if you lack confidence, nobody cares about what you're saying and it, it lands poorly. The, this managing your energy so it's appropriate, this situational awareness, I really don't hear a lot of people talking about that. And I'll tell you a you know, quick story. was I was up uh, with one of my clients up in uh, New York City. We were observing one of their call blocks. And so one of their salespeople was on the phone. And this guy was like, his energy level, I asked him what, it, what he thought it was. He says, I'm like a 14. I said, I think you're like a 25 on a scale of one to 10. His energy level was off the, the charts. His confidence was really high. But he didn't make the sale. And I, I asked him, you know, what, how would you rate the energy level of the person that you were working with? And he said, I don't know, maybe a four or a five. And that's so crucial that you're able to have confidence but also match the energy level. And when your emotions get out of control, some people, some people get insecure and fold up like a cheap lawn chair. Other people amp their energy level up so high that no one can hear them.
1: Yeah, I think um – so you can think about energy level a couple of different ways. And, you know, this is kind of an extreme and silly example, but um, so a month ago from when you and I are talking was when Connor McGregor and Floyd Merriweather uh, fought in Las Vegas. And if you looked at what the two of them were doing as they walked out into the ring, think about the energy level that they needed to bring for that kind of, of a performance. Think about the crowd, think about the amount of attention, the amount of money that was at stake for the two of them. Now think about somebody giving a commencement address at a very, you know, uh, very formal university. Um, You know, they're both performing in front of crowds, but they're both doing very different kinds of things that require different energy levels. Now that's an extreme example, but let's talk about a different example. Say you're in a sales context and say you're going to a crucial meeting that's either going to make or break the deal. So one of the questions I would ask, well, is it a one-on-one meeting? Are you sitting on one side of the table and there's seven people across from you? Are you part of a team of five, talking to a team of five? Each of those scenarios is going to require a very different kind of energy level from you. Now, if you're giving a speech to 20 people versus a speech to 200 people, again, very different kind of dynamic, very different energy level. So as you're waiting backstage, waiting to go into that sales call or waiting to take that stage, think about where you need to put that. Think about like a stereo knob. You want to tune it just like a stereo knob. You want to get the anxiety at the the lowest point. You want to get the Confidence level up, and you want to get that en- energy level to appropriate spot. Yeah, I mean, one of the things you, that's talked about in the book that's important in all this is that even though it's the 21st century, and you know we have these professional jobs now, we're still biologically not that different than we were when we were running around the woods with predators chasing us. You know, we have this fight or flight biologic instinct that kicks in when we sense a threat. Our body body is flooded with adrenaline that makes our mouth dry, it makes our heart rate, it makes our breathing shallow, it makes makes us blink a lot, it agitates us. And that was really useful if we were being chased by a tiger. It's not so useful when you're pitching your startup to VCs, and they're looking at you trying to assess whether you're calm, confident, and put together. Um, So when we talk about anxiety, we talk about trying to harness the biology and overcome the biological response that's normal in a high threat situation
0: part of the anxiety, especially in sales, is the anxiety of being rejected. And I, a lot of people don't understand. I mean, it's a, it's a, the, the feeling, the emotion of rejection is the most common emotion that we get. We get rejected all day long. But it also creates the deepest psychological wounds. And those wounds, you know, those scars, they get in the way. We bring those past experiences into the next experience. We bring that in that creates fear. But that, that fear of being rejected is, is completely evolutionary and completely biological. Because, I mean, imagine when you talk about being you know, back in the cave 10,000 years ago, I mean, if you got kicked out of the cave because you got rejected, that was a death sentence. And even when we look at ancient literature, being, being banished was worse than death. So for all, all of human existence, that was there. So not only do you have the fight or flight mechanism kicking on, you've got that response happening but you also have this deep biological aversion to to getting rejected by other human beings and you know in a in a sporting event or in for example as a soldier walking into a battle that's not so much an issue but as you said in the modern business environment you're going up and doing a pitch for your for your baby for the company the startup that you've built and in front of a bunch of you know venture capitalists the 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 chance that you're going to get rejected is fairly high and you're bringing that in your heart's beating and your you know, the the fight or flight uh, response is kicking in. And when that happens, you know, you begin to lose your ability to think rationally because the blood's rushed out of your neocortex into your muscles to get ready to have a fight with a venture capitalist, which isn't going to happen. It's really difficult in that moment to manage it. I mean, and that's the threshold. And I think neuroscientists call this the magical quarter of a second that you have in those moments to get yourself psyched up, not just going in because, I, and I love the idea of you know, psyching it because you can create the fight or flight response just worrying about it. But also when that happens to you, when it's going on, the mechanism that you use to gain control once you become rationally aware that this biological response that you have no control over, it happens without your consent is going on. So let's jump into some of the techniques that you offer people in that moment of truth for managing both the fight or flight response, the biological response to rejection, and the fact that when all of it's happening and your brain is going haywire, you've got to be able to rise above all the emotions and gain control.
1: Yeah, that's a huge point. I mean, the thing that distinguishes sales from most other professions is how frequently you're going to encounter failure and just have to get right back in the game the next moment. One of the most interesting techniques I learned for that dynamic was I spent a day at West Point at the U.S. Military Academy with their psychologist, and I watched them deal with their lacrosse team, their varsity lacrosse athletes, the day after they lost Navy, uh, their arch rival, and it was really interesting to watch what they did. They did talk a little bit about the game to try to see what lessons they could learn about why the team fell short the day before but mostly they tried to get them to forget about it there's there was not going to be anything positive for them to gain from ruminating on this loss or from thinking about it before they go into their next game instead what they were doing was they were trying to get these athletes to focus on their greatest hit so imagine if you know imagine if you were if there were an ESPN like channel that focused on sales imagine what the highlight reel would look like and basically one of the techniques that you want to use is in your work or in my work, we should have in our mind a highlight reel of our best performances, the days that we crushed it, the calls that could not have gone better. And we should have a way to summon that up and to replay it in our minds. And we should replay it right before we go into that next call. This is what athletes are doing. This is what military people are doing. This is what high performers do. They don't sit backstage and just worry and and not have anything to do. They have a structured routine that they use before they perform. And one of the techniques they use is they go over their highlight reel of their greatest performance.
0: You know, it's funny that you said that I've got a highlight reel. I keep it in my inbox. So, and I've had, I've kept this for years since my twenties. So people will send you a nice note. Thank you for doing this. Or that was great. Or you were awesome. Or we're so glad that, you know, we did business with you and I keep all of those in a folder. And sometimes you fail. Sometimes things don't go well. And, and you, you know, everybody gets down on themselves. And I've always gone back to that. It's my own highlight reel, but I always go back and I'll, I'll go read 10 or 15 of those notes. And, and it helps me forget. And I, I love what you said about forgetting. We, We measure uh, that forgetting in salespeople. We have an assessment called Sales Drive that was developed by Dr. Chris Croner, and it's a composite of need for achievement, competitiveness, and optimism. And optimism is important because the great salespeople have short memories. They're able to, to deal with a setback and forget it quickly and then move on to the next thing uh and uh, i mean other than a highlight reel what else can people do to develop that level of optimism so that they can see the so they can see the next the next opportunity
1: so a highlight reel is a backward looking uh way to think about positive uh events um one of the other things that can be very powerful that sports psychologists teach all the time is the power of mental rehearsal so highlight reel looking backwards is great but as you're sitting in that chair waiting to go into the pitch meeting or waiting to go into that vital sales call prospectively and in the future play through your mind how you want that call to go that's you know if you talk to a professional golfer they're doing this before they hit every ball if you talk to a basketball player they're rehearsing their free throws anything that's going to be in a controlled setting like that you want to be able to kind of harness this power of rehearsals. So don't just do it backwards, do it forwards in the future. That's another thing that can boost your confidence. The other thing that can boost your confidence is having some sort of a ritual or a routine or even a superstition. There's a lot of research that suggests that even though these, these things may not make a lot of sense to us logically why they work, that if you do something the same way every time, it can make you feel a little bit more in control distract you from the anxiety or negative feelings you may be feeling Um, so there's a reason that you know stephen colbert before he goes out onto the stage at night in his show he has this elaborate ritual of special handshakes and ringing bells and he chews on a certain kind of pen jerry seinfeld before he takes the stage he has something he does every time watch lebron james before a basketball game he's throwing powder in the air he's doing special handshakes he's making gestures he's saying things to himself you know having a ritual or a routine before you go into the situation can also boost your
0: confidence. I I, I love that. And you're exactly right. You you can just, I I like, I'm a big baseball fan, but just watching batters come up to bat in major league baseball, they go through the same ritual every single time with their hands and their feet and golfers do the same thing. One of the, one of the the mechanisms I I had this wonderful sales manager, I work for, that he used to get you ready for these, especially really intense situations and big deals where a lot was at stake is he did something called murder boarding. And what we would do is we would take a deal before we walked in and we would go through a scenario of killing it. So you would go through all of the worst case scenarios, like what would happen if this happened? Or what are the things that we don't know? Or what if the prospect says this? Or what if you're in this situation? And you would go through all of that stuff run through it, you would, it was sometimes embarrassing because there would be things you didn't know about. And then you would go into the call. And what always happened was what, what the worst case scenario that you went through in the, you know, in the, in the murder boarding session, when you got in the call, everything was easier in the call because you had already gone through every possibility of things that you might worry about. And you were typically better because you had anticipated that something might happen and you already had a way of responding to it.
1: Yeah, that, so that's a great technique. I mean, the military does that in terms of special operations with contingency planning. You know, one of the famous examples of sports is Michael Phelps' coach used to make him occasionally uh, do a practice race where his goggles fell off in the middle of the race. And, in fact, in one of the Olympic events, his goggles broke in the middle of the race, and he had to finish with water in his eyes. But he practiced that so many times. I, I think that kind of technique is super important. I do think that fits under the larger heading of That's a little bit more the substance of what you're doing. That's actually making you better at playing the piano, if we go back to the piano playing metaphor. Um, So I think that's a hugely important practice technique. And your question was, how do you boost confidence? Well, the better you are at the underlying substance, the more confident you're gonna be. So I think, you know, part of, you know, I'm talking mostly about hacks and techniques you can do in these final moments, but yeah, one of the best ways to build your confidence. To get really damn good at the underlying activity you're doing, whether it's sales or athletics or playing the piano.
0: So I'm going to ask you a weird question. It sounds like you spent some time with the military and I spend a good bit of time with the military myself to work with military recruiters. And one of the aha moments for me over the last couple of years, just as we began this practice of helping military recruiters is, was, I was in a, a, a and I was at Fort Harrison and I had a group of, uh, of recruiters in front of me. Every one of them was a combat veteran. So all of them had been shot at in real life situations where someone was trying to kill them. And they were all perfectly happy to do that. I mean, they do say happy, but I mean, they didn't have any problem doing that. In fact, they were enthusiastic about picking up a gun and going and doing that type of work. What I realized is that they were scared to death of picking up a telephone and calling a 17 year old, just having a conversation with a 17 year old and their parents or even educators, even though one was much more dangerous and much more uh, intense. And for me, I mean, in a situation like that, I'd probably run away because that's not, I don't want someone shooting at me, but they were more comfortable in a situation that had a much higher level of anxiety than another situation that, you know, just calling up a 17 year old and asking if they want to join the military seemed very benign to me in doing that. And the aha moment to me was that, is that those two things weren't translating. Like the, the, the danger and the fear of getting killed was not nearly as bad for them as the danger and the threat of social rejection. It was just a different level of fear. So how do you help people deal with things like that, where they, they're, they fear the wrong thing in this, in in essence?
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting example. Um One of the, so I I met some military people while I was recording the book. It sounds like you've had a lot more experience with them than I have. One of the people I met was uh, a colonel. I think his last name was Jensen. And he'd actually been in the Army Rangers, the special forces branch of the uh, army. And he'd done combat and he'd led troops in combat. And then he came back and he actually got a doctorate in psychology. And when I met him, he was on the faculty at West Point. And it was interesting because he'd had a fear of public speaking. And he had to figure out a way to come get over this. And one of the realizations he came to, he he basically said, uh, anytime he goes into a public speaking kind of scenario, which is not that different than calling the recruits scenario that you presented, he says to himself two things. He says, number one, I know more about this subject than anybody in this room. That's why they asked me to speak. So I have nothing to fear about somebody being more expert about this than I am. And number two, unlike what I was doing last year, no one in this room is going to try to kill me. He he basically looks at the potential consequences here. And, you know, I think one of the reasons that former military people can be so high-performing in subsequent professions is because they can say that to themselves. I've faced something much more risky than what I'm about to do today. If I can deal with people shooting at me, I can deal with picking up the phone. I can deal with pitching my ideas, I can deal with this negotiation. The consequences are much less life and indefinite. If they can be taught to sort of put that perspective on things, I think they'll be much more confident when they pick up the phone and much less fearful of what at the end of the day is a pretty small consequence if the person hangs up on.
0: Like. We've all been there, right? We've all had situations that are much worse than what we've, you know, what we're about to do. And that's another place where you can put things in perspective. And sometimes, I I faced this recently, I I had an opportunity to uh, jump out of an airplane with the Golden Knights. It was a really big honor. I was so excited about it. And I was scared to death. At one point, one of the first sergeants, when we were getting prepped for it, walked, you know, was, I was walking out of the restroom and he looked at me and he said, He said, Sir, are you okay? And I said, I said, I'm fine. He goes, He goes, Well, your face is just really white. I just want to make sure you're okay. And I was like, Wow, they can really see that how, how afraid I am of jumping out of this airplane. And, and we got on the airplane and we took off and we're circling around Fort Knox before we, we jump out. And I'm, you know, and I'm just, I, I, I mean, the, I'm fear has just overwhelm me in that moment. And I'm watching the first person jump out and I go, oh my God, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can do this. And of course, I'm in, you know, I'm in an airplane with soldiers. I'm going to jump. I know that. And then it just dawns on me, why am I afraid of this? And the reason I was afraid of it was because I'd never done it. As soon as we jumped out, I, it's, I, mean, just, I mean, as soon as we jumped, I was like, oh my God, I want to do this again. This was the greatest thing ever. Will Smith's got a great video on this. I watched it after I jumped out of the airplane, but he was so right about it. He says, you know, God puts so many great things on the other side of fear, but it's hard sometimes to remind ourselves that you're just in a situation you've never faced before. And the good news is that on the other side of that, you're going to have a great experience and a great story and something really cool to look back at that's gonna make you better in the future. And I know that's kind of crazy, weird rationalization, but it's just another way of, of looking at the world. I don't know, it was just, for me, it was terrifying, you know, being in that airplane going up, but oh my God, it was, it was the greatest thing I ever did. I mean, I was on a high for months afterwards.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, uh, first I commend you for having the courage to do that. Um, I've never jumped out of a plane and I, uh, I am going to bed, I probably never will. Um, so uh, you're better than me in that regard. Um, I think one of the things I take away from that story is that the techniques that help one person uh, may be different than the techniques that help another, people, another person, but you really need to find what works for you. Um, some of the things that will help us be more confident or overcome our anxieties or manage our energy levels will be very idiosyncratic, even kind of weird. But let me tell you a story. Um, I talked to a sales guy not too long ago. He's in a a kind of sales context where he makes a, he's not cold calling like multiple, multiple times a day, but his first real interaction with a prospect who's been well qualified is generally a telephone or a Skype interaction in a remote setting. And he really needs to build rapport quickly, you know, whether he's going to succeed in getting them down the funnel or not is largely about, um, you know, he's got a good product, so it's largely about creating a quickly establishing a relationship, building some rapport, building some likability. Before he makes those calls in his home office, on a, on a shelf, he has a crown. And this was a crown that he got his senior year in high school when he was voted the king of the prom. And before he makes these calls, he says he'll often put the crown on just for a minute or two and just sit quietly and reflect. And it sounds really bizarre to imagine the sales guy sitting in his office wearing this crazy crown, but he says it's actually very meaningful to him because midway through his junior year of high school, he moved high school, he changed. So he lost all his friends at the old school. He got into this new unfamiliar environment. He needed to quickly make a whole new set of friends. And after less than a year and a half, he built enough new connections with these people that they voted him the king of the prom. And so... You know, it's, it's a hokey kind of trick. It manipulates his emotions. But, yeah, it makes him confident as hell that, you know, people, I have this ability to very quickly establish relationships with people, to, you know, be build rapport, to be likable. And that's what he wants to think about before he gets on these phone calls because that's really, the, in that interaction, that's the key. You know, later when he meets them face-to-face, then he'll get into a more dynamic and more sophisticated form of selling. But in that first moment, it's really about rapport and likability. And that crown, as weird as it sounds, that's the technique that he uses. So one of the things I would think about is find your own crown. You know, it's going to be different for me. It's going to be different for you. But if you can find some device or some technique like that, it can be powerful for you.
0: That's, um, I love that story. So that brings me to the last couple of questions I have for you. Um, And let's roll back to what you said. The way people deal with fear, the way people deal with this moment of truth, where they have to make a decision to move forward, is individual. It's different for every person. And one of the things that drives me crazy, and I'm I'm very clear when I train or speak about this, is I just think it's disingenuous to tell people, "I'll just let it roll off your back," or "I'll just do that," or "Oh, you know, I just did it and it was easy for me." i think I think that sometimes we miss the point that everybody faces these things differently and and so my question for you is, and, and maybe i don 't know if you 've thought about this, but for leaders who lead people who have to go into these 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 anxiety ridden situations where they have to make these split second decisions about moving forward what 's the best way for leaders to lead these individuals and help them make those make those decisions and do it? on their terms rather than the leaders' terms?
1: That's a great question. Um, There's actually a whole chapter in the book on the science of pep talks, which is how a leader gets the followers psyched up before a performance event. And for people who don't want to read the whole book, we actually took a piece of that chapter and put it in the July-August issue of Harvard Business Review. So if you Google on the science of pep talk, this article will pop up. There's a lot of research that's been done on this, but I can boil it down to three things you're a leader and you're trying to say the right words to your team before they go into some sort of a make or break situation there's three things you should try to accomplish in that talk number one is what they call direction giving which is the substance you know if it's a sales call you want to talk about the strategy of meeting objections or what the closing strategy is going to be the actual nuts and bolts if i'm giving a pep talk to my kids basketball team it's going to be about the offense and defensive strategy the second element is what they call empathy building you need to show that there's a personal connection between the leader and the follower things like recognizing that what you're asking them to do is hard um recognizing that uh you know that they may be feeling a little bit anxious show that you're in their shoes that you're on their side thank them for having the courage to go ahead with it the third thing is what they call meaning making this is especially important when the performance event may not seem super important in the scheme of things. So, say you're a baseball team with 162 games, and it's you know May, and you're in the in the doldrum. Um, you want to connect that small event to the larger narrative, to make it a little bit more epic and sweeping. Um, so, try to make say some words that make the task seem important, that transcends um, you know you know it might just feel like another sales call to them, but in the scheme of things, you know your team is trying to hit their number for the quarter, and this is really important because maybe the company's about to go public. Um, so try to connect their smaller tasks to some larger narrative. Those are the three elements that generally will make with the talk.
0: I love that. Fantastic. Thank you. I've got one more question for you, Dan, that's a little bit, its its you're probably not expecting it. It's completely out of left field. My son's a sophomore in college, a good kid, athlete, um, makes good grades, and he's got a really bright future ahead of him. But if I sent him to you to ask for advice on what he needs to do to be successful, uh, in in I mean that's a big, big, broad question. So I'll dial it in to be successful, getting out of college and say his first ten years. What what advice would you give my son?
1: I think the two things I would say are to continually ask yourself what am I learning from this? Um, You know, we take jobs for lots of reasons. You know, sometimes it's because the brand name looks great in a resume. Sometimes it's because of the, um, you know, the compensation or some of the other perks we might get from it. Um, But I think, especially when you're in your 20s, um, you want to be in a job where the learning curve is really, really steep. So that's probably the first thing I would think about And then the second thing I would think about is, uh, do I really like this? Is this going to make me happy? Do I see this getting somewhere that's going to make me happy? Um, You know, a lot of people's first jobs out of college are not necessarily a thrill a minute. They're designed to get you to some other place. Um, The question then becomes, when you look at the people who've made it to that other place and you project yourself into that, does that seem like a good fit? Um, so, you know, we've all heard of stories of, you know, people who went to med school, but they didn't really want to be a doctor, or people who went to law school didn't really want to be a, a lawyer. Um, make sure that you don't get yourself on a track where you're really not that potentially fulfilled or interested in where the end part of it is. So those are the two things I would keep in mind for a kid
0: that is. Excellent advice. Dan, tell us, uh, tell the audience how they can connect with you, how they can learn more about Psyched Up, and, uh, and if there are any additional resources that you offer.
1: Sure. Well, first, thanks again for having me today, Jeff. I really enjoyed the conversation. You asked great questions, and obviously you've had some really interesting life experiences. Um, and it's clear that you resonate with the ideas in the book. Um, to learn more about the book, the book is called Psyched Up, How the Science of Mental Preparation Can Help You Succeed. It's in bookstores. It's online. There's a website for the book at www.psychedupthebook.com. I'm on Twitter at Dan McGinn.
0: Go back, go read this book, go check out uh, Dan, check him out on Twitter. You're on LinkedIn as well. I am. Yeah. Good. Go check out Dan on LinkedIn and, uh, and Dan, thank you so much. Go buy Psyched Up. You're going to love this book. It's awesome. And uh, thanks everybody for joining us today.